I do think that we often do have our priorities wrong. And alongside church growth, um, I think Paul would be horrified that we are not insisting on unity. The, the thing that would really shock him if he were to see us today is not only that we are disunited, but that we don't care. So somebody plants a church, and they're successful, and the church grows, and they have a new building and, and big programs, but they have nothing to do with the church down the road or the one uh, across the, the other side of the square or whatever, because they're thinking, well, God is doing this thing here. For Paul, the really important imperative at the end of Romans is that so that you may with one heart and voice glorify the God and Father of Jesus. Paul saw the danger of church disunity because, frankly, if churches are disunited, the wider world doesn't care what we say. I will try to make this intro as brief as possible, mostly because I'm very excited about who the guest is. And for those of you that cheated, you saw it when you downloaded it. But for those that just have you on autoplay, uh, thank you first for doing that. And I will briefly introduce that guest. Many of you don't know, this show is entirely funded by you. And I want to make a appeal to your good graces and your patronage. If any of the conversations that have happened over these past six months have impacted you even a small iota, I would ask you uh, if you would be willing to help further these conversations by becoming a patron. There are different levels of perks. There are a few of you that have gotten a hold of the book club, and that is where I send out a book each month. Uh, they are fantastic books. I believe June's book uh, will be Henry Nouwen, um, and you can't go wrong with Henry Nouwen. So, the guest today is on the bucket list. If you look over at your library, as I am mine, there will be books by many theologians, and I can't think that you don't have one by uh, Professor N.T. Wright. If you don't, you do usually know who he is. It, it is a great privilege of mine to be able to speak with Tom. He speaks about Paul with a level of ease that I wish that I could, and we discussed that. So to, he's written a new book, Paul, a biography. So it's we're approaching it from a different way, approaching it more from a historical context of Paul living, breathing, and doing, as opposed to a theological or exegetical way. And that should be enough for me. Let's roll tape. Professor N.T. Wright, thank you so much for coming on to the Can I Say This Church podcast. And and before uh, I ask you to say a little bit about yourself, I just would like to say when I started this show, I looked on the, the, the catalog of books that I have, and there's many up there from you. And so I I will try my best not to not to let my fanish nature of, of your work come out as we talk. But I think we'll be able to, I think I'll be able to control myself. We'll see how it goes. But thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So I can't think that if anyone is listening to this show that they don't know a bit about you, but can you just quickly summarize a little bit about yourself and what you do day in and day out? Well, I, I basically study and teach the Bible and particularly the New Testament. Um, uh, I actually try to teach the whole Bible, but my official job is to be a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews, which is on the beautiful, sunny east coast of Scotland. Uh, I say this because I know some people think it rains all the time in Scotland, and the answer is, well, not here it doesn't sometimes, but we've been having a lovely day. 
And I write books about the New Testament and write articles and speak and lecture in various places. And I have worked over the last 40 years in a variety of jobs, some in full-time academics, some in full-time church work, and some in a mixture of both. So at the moment, I'm doing a full-time academic job, but I'm still quite involved with the church in various ways, inevitably. And I've tried to combine the two. And I'm not that far off retirement. I turned 70 later this year, and the university wants me to go on for another couple of years. But um, I'm in some ways quite looking forward to retirement. I enjoy my teaching. I've got some excellent students. But I'm also looking forward to, in the time on a tray, spending more time with my family. My grandchildren are getting older, and I want to spend as much time with them as I can. So that's, that's basically who I am. I can understand that. Uh, I'm not anywhere close to retirement, and I still like to spend as much time with not grandkids, definitely not there yet, but but I can't think of a time. There's nothing, there's nothing better, I think, than you can do than spending time sure. uh, with your family. Sure. So you have written a new book, and, and for those listening, I feel like you've written so many books it would be hard to say, but so the most recent book uh, is about Paul. And, yes. and just, so to start with, with, this book is written from a different direction, so you kind of took it more as a biographical approach as opposed to an exegetical or a theological approach. So why? Um, well, I, I've written obviously quite a few books and lots of articles about Paul's theology and about the detailed exegetical study of his letters. But um, various people have said, um, that's all very well for people who read that sort of academic stuff. But what about ordinary people who need to know what sort of a person Paul was and want to get into him that way? And so the publishers, both in America and in England, suggested that I try and do a biography. And I found that a, a, a wonderful challenge um, because material about Paul to be able to write graphical detail and to see where the gaps are, like those 10 years, probably in his early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, um, when we really have no information about him at all. But from what we know about him later, we can probe back and say, what must he have been doing during that time? And he was praying and studying the scriptures and so on, but other things perhaps as well. And for me, this was not to uh, to push the theology or the exegesis aside, but rather to set what Paul was thinking, what he believed about who God was and who Jesus was and so on, into its full three-dimensional historical, social, cultural context. And I find as I do that, that the letters themselves come up in three dimensions again and again, so that uh, I wanted the readers to get the sense of actually seeing the world through Paul's eyes, so that when we find him writing a letter to the Christians in Corinth or whatever, we, we are saying, yeah, of course, that's what you need to say right now. Please go ahead and say it. Um, instead of just meeting the letters as documents in a vacuum, as it were. Um, and I found as I did that, that the letters themselves kept coming to life in new ways, which was, was a really exciting thing to, to get into. If I went back in time, and so... To, to use a bad analogy, so if I, if I got on a Doctor Who like TARDIS and went back to first century Rome as a Christian today, knowing what I know, uh, and, and the very little that that is, what do you feel like would be the biggest shift as I'm watching Paul preach or I'm observing <laughs> this early version of Christianity? What would be that, that thing that would just blow you out of the water? Well, there's, there's all sorts of 
things which would be so whoever you were watching, if you went back to see somebody else in Paul's world like um, Nero or, or um, Seneca or somebody like that, I think, I mean, it's quite interesting to, 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 to say the first two things that would probably strike you before anything else. One would be the smell that they didn't have soap in the way that we do and that cities particularly were incredibly smelly. They didn't have proper sanitation and that uh, they, they lived with this the whole time. But the other would be the crowds because um, there was no such thing as private life in the ancient world unless you were extremely rich or extremely royal. So that everything ha that happens happens on the street um, and, and the houses um, are very much open to people seeing what's happening and who's coming and going. And often there are tenements with different families living literally on top of one another and um, the cooking smells and noises and goodness knows what all the time. And there is Paul in the middle of that sort of world. In other words, he's not like somebody in a modern Western town where you can have your own house and nobody knows what, really who you are in it. And uh, when you go to a church on a street and it's all quite dignified, everything is going on in the hurly-burly of, of, of a muddled human existence. But then in particular, what would strike us about the, the Christians, about the, the Jesus followers of Paul's day, would be the way that they lived as family. They really cared for one another. I've been privileged as a bishop to see a little bit of this in some parts of the northeast of England where I worked, where it's, there's some areas of real poverty and where the church really does function as a big second family to many people. And that was the reality in Paul's day where people were often thrown out by their own families like many Muslim people are today if they become Christians. They don't want to know anymore. Uh, and, and so the church functioned as a kind of extended family. But it was functioning in that way by sharing um, resources with people who needed it and also by sharing resources outside the church's um, own circle. So Paul says, do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. And from the start, the church had it as a priority to look out for and care for the poorest of the poor. And I think we in the West... We, we, we kind of know that's sort of on the radar somewhere, but we don't make it the number one priority around which we order the rest of our worshipping and, and faithful life. And so I think that's probably the thing that would strike us um, before anything else. Yeah, I've talked about this on with other guests. I feel like when, when you think about the community of the church that way, we do it as a form of convenience. And and for yeah. them, it was yeah. it was in, it was entirely more than that. It, and honestly, I would say arguably more holy, the way that they lived. Yes. I think that's right. And they lived as what the sociologists call a fictive kinship group. That is, even though they knew they weren't from the same family, and indeed they would be different skin colors, they would be different social status, there'd be men and women and slaves and free and certainly Jews and Gentiles and, and as many different nations as you can imagine in a place like Corinth or Ephesus or Rome, they actually functioned as a family. And nobody had ever imagined that such a thing was possible. This was revolutionary. Um, this still is revolutionary if and when the church manages to do it. So it's really very striking. Outside of the context of, of the church, and I say that with a capital air quotes, yeah. church, how, am I, how should one begin to approach Paul, not as a theologian, but also as part of history? Because I feel like most of the time, all we treat him as is a theologian. And so how do we begin yes. to approach that in, in a normal way or, or in a good way? I began my academic life 
as an ancient historian, studying ancient history and then philosophy before I went on to theology. And so I see Paul within that world alongside people like Cicero and Seneca and the great thinkers and writers of their day. And when you think, um, who has been the most influential from all the public intellectuals of that time? Paul has quite a claim. I mean, many people have heard of folk like Cicero and Seneca, but actually they are read today by only a comparatively small number of people, even though they're still well worth reading, and a philosopher like Epictetus as well. Great people. But Paul is read by millions all around the world. And what Paul did at the time in founding these strange little communities, these churches, these fictive kinship groups, was explosive sociologically and psychologically and uh, he's had the most extraordinary effect. And I think anyone studying ancient history and anyone studying the effects of the first century on later, the later world would have to say that um, after Jesus himself, Paul is the most astonishingly influential person. And when you think here is this, um, by his own account, rather scruffy little chap who doesn't present a very good appearance when he turns up in a town and people rather laugh at him because he's not a terribly good speaker um, and so on and so on. But what he did and achieved has resonated right through and still does in so many ways today. And especially here coming soon in our church calendar. And so as we're recording this, for those listening, uh, it's we're, we're coming up on Pentecost quickly. And so we're very soon going to enter into the part of our church season that we're going to talk about Paul a lot and, and the road to Damascus. And a question that's always been hard for me to reconcile is the Saul of Tarsus, um, who is normally portrayed as very belligerent towards Christians, uh, persecuting them, ready to, ready to go toe-to-toe at any time and reconciling that with a Paul that is not that, um, the, a Saul versus Paul. So ha- help me a bit with that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing is that um, Saul, who becomes Paul, he is, he is zealous, he is eager, he is, he is uh, as we would say, in your face. He's ready to, to go for it, whatever's going on. And in the Jewish world that he grew up in, um, the, the, we have to, you have to read a book like, say, First Maccabees to realize what it was like. The Jews had been under the heel of the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Syrians, and now it was the Romans. And they had developed this fierce loyalty to Israel's God, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, fierce loyalty to the Torah, to the law of God, and because the pagans had been making them compromise and making them eat pork and making them worship their gods and so on and so on. And the devout Jews like Paul and his family, Saul of Tarsus and his family, were determined to be loyal to Israel's God. And here's the thing, that when Saul of Tarsus was faced with this new movement, these people following Jesus, and then fraternizing with pagans uh, and, and eating, with, eating with Gentiles, um, they just thought, this is appalling. This is precisely the sort of thing that we have been taught to resist. So he did resist it. But then when he decided discovered on the road to Damascus that the one he'd been resisting was actually Jesus, who was Israel's Messiah, and that God had raised him from the dead. This didn't stop him being zealous for Israel's God. It gave him a totally new insight into how Israel's God had, in fact, always planned to fulfill his purposes. And so Saul had to rethink his entire view of Scripture, not to abandon Israel's traditions and Scriptures, but to read them in the light of Jesus. And when he did that, he redirects his zeal into love rather than violence, into a a, a message of 
caring for the poor and welcoming the outsiders, etc., rather than simply keeping Israel pure. And here's the thing. Paul didn't think that he was thereby going soft on the total demand of God for purity of life, etc. He believed that the powers that had held the pagan nations captive had been defeated on the cross of Jesus, so that now when Gentiles believed in Jesus, then the Spirit had worked in them so that they weren't impure, they weren't unclean, and you could sit down and eat with them, and that was wonderful. So it's a total turnaround, but you can see how the same personality on the one hand and the same love for Israel's God was shining through all the way through. And so zeal, then, is a word that we don't use often today. I don't believe I ever have used it outside of a scriptural <laughs> context. And so what do you mean when you say turning from zeal oh. into, into, into well, something else? Um, in, in Paul's day, zeal, is, it means burning. It's something that happens inside you when you're burning with desire to do something or burning with eagerness to get on with a job or burning with anger if something really bad is happening. But then it doesn't stay inside you. In Paul's world, zeal is something you have to get on and do. Um, and for a loyal Jew, as I say, if you read the book called First Maccabees, you'll see Judas Maccabeus and his brothers faced with the Syrians desecrating the temple in Jerusalem. The zeal for them meant fighting battles. It meant saying your prayers. It meant staying holy. It meant um, making sure that these pagans were seen off the patch and never to come back if you could. And so it meant a military zeal. But for Saul, who became Paul, that zeal turned into a burning passion to work for God, to pray, to witness to the love and power of Jesus, and to bring the news of the gospel to, to the ends of the earth. Some of the criticism that I will hear, not personally, but you'll hear it online, and it's usually from a fringe group um, or someone quasi-fringe, will we'll basically say that Paul is, is, in, is almost restarting Christianity, is, is kind of reinventing when he goes and he preaches on these missions trips. Is there anything to that? Do you feel like he's trying to reinvent or become a, a, a different version of Christianity than what Jesus was? No, um, because Jesus wasn't teaching a religion called Christianity, and in a sense, nor was Paul, actually. Um, in a sense, there wasn't a religion called Christianity. Jesus was bringing Israel's great tradition to its climax by embodying the return of Israel's God to rescue his people. And so, as the scriptures had always said, when Israel gets rescued, then the world gets in on the act. Um, you know, if you read the Psalms, you'll see that when God does what he's going to do for Israel, then the whole world, all the nations, will call him blessed as well. And Jesus is doing the thing which has to be done, launching God's kingdom, and specifically through his death and resurrection, defeating all the powers that stand in the way of Israel's God becoming king of the whole world, and then in his resurrection, launching the new creation itself. Now, once that has happened, then what other people have to do is not to copy what Jesus did, but to implement it. It's the difference between somebody who writes a symphony and somebody who, as a conductor, teaches the orchestra to play it. If you try to rewrite the symphony, then you're not being loyal to the original composer. So Jesus has written the music, and Paul is the one who has to go around and teach people to sing it. And of course, writing music and, and, and singing it is are two different things. So if Paul looks different, it's because he has a different role within the ongoing purpose. For us, though, since the 18th century, we have 
been taught to think of Christianity as a religion different from something called Judaism. That's completely foreign to the New Testament. The point is not comparative religion, but what in the trade we call messianic eschatology. In other words, um, the point about Jesus is that he was Israel's Messiah, but if he was Israel's Messiah, then somebody has to tell the nations of the world that the one God has sent Israel's Messiah at last, so it's time for them, the nations of the world, to come in on the act, and that's where Paul comes in. You write in your book, and I will do it a disservice if I try to explain it, but I've written down a few notes, and, and I'm curious, because it's not a connection that I've ever made. Well, you make a lot of those in the book, but... Um, <laughs> so, when I think of the connection that you make between Elijah and Paul, and then they, they, they both are fleeing from danger in Israel, you know, one to Arabia, one to Horeb, and then they go back to Damascus. And so... What is that about? And I guess, also, how does that relate a bit to the quote-unquote silent years that we get from Paul in Galatians 1? Or does that relate at all? Yeah, well, the silent years are a bit different because the silent years are really after that time. Um, because from Galatians 1, we know that Saul, Paul, um, after his Damascus experience, he stays in Damascus a little while, then he goes off to Arabia, which, as I've argued in the book, this is actually, he's going to Mount Sinai, which is where Elijah went. Sinai and Horeb are substantially the same place. Scholars argue about the precise location of which summit we're talking about in the Arabian Peninsula. But he's, Saul is doing what Elijah did for the same reason, that he's been very zealous, and, and this is where he is actually quoting um, the, the passage in First Kings, where Elijah says, I've been extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And Paul says the same thing. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And both of them had been employing violence. And then in different ways, it had gone horribly wrong. So Elijah goes and says to God, hey, what's going on? Am I still doing the right thing? And God says, yep, go return to Damascus and anoint so-and-so to be king and anoint so-and-so to be prophet in your place. And Saul of Tarsus, I think he goes off, and I think it's like somebody going on a retreat when something really shocking has happened. They go away to, to look God in the face and say, what is this all about? And I think when, when he says, I returned again to Damascus, that's a direct quote from that passage in First Kings 20, where that's what God says to Elijah. And so I think the point is that Elijah was one of the great role models of zeal, which we've mentioned already. Elijah and Phineas in the book of Numbers were the two great zealous characters in the Old Testament. And Paul has been role modeling them, and now he is acting out the script, except now he is told, go back to Damascus and get on with not anointing someone else, but announcing the anointed one, the Messiah, that he's in fact the king of the world. Now it's after that that he has to leave Damascus in a hurry because people don't like it. Then he goes to Jerusalem and they are suspicious of him there. And so they send him back to his home, which was Tarsus in Cilicia, in what we would call southeastern Turkey. And that's when there's a long gap um, when we don't actually have any direct information, but we have to conclude that he must have been studying the scriptures and praying and no doubt trying to tell people about Jesus there in Tarsus. How well that went down, we have no idea. But I suspect that we see the reflection of that when much later in writing Romans, Paul says that he has unceasing sorrow and anguish in his heart because of his family, his kinsfolk, um, because they haven't believed. 
And I imagine those years in Tarsus must have been pretty painful for Paul, with, with his own parents and brothers and sisters, maybe most of them saying, we have no idea what you're on about, um, and we certainly don't think um, this can possibly be the will of God. So it's out of that that then there comes this passionate man coming back to Antioch to join in the missionary work of the church and to re-engage in public life, if you like. In Acts 17, and, and I usually hear this text preach as an apologetic text, and, and, uh-huh. I, and I read you argue that that's not right. And, and if I'm honest, I've used it as an apologetic text as a way to preach to an, uh, the God that you can't see or the idol that yeah. you should have yeah. been worshiping. But you make the case that, 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 that that's not really the case. It's not intended to be an apologetic text, uh, and that it, it parallels with the trial of Socrates, correct? Yes. Well, um, the Areopagus in Athens, which is Mars Hill in Athens, it isn't a public debating place. It's the highest court in the land. It's the the high point in the Athenian legal system. And um, that goes back many centuries before Paul. And the legend was that the court of the Areopagus was founded by Apollo himself. Aeschylus has a play about the founding of the court. And uh, so Paul is dragged before. Why is Paul dragged before the highest court in the land? Because he seems to be preaching foreign divinities. Um, And because in the marketplace, uh, the marketplace is where the philosophical debates take place. Paul has been doing that, and Luke doesn't tell us what he's been saying, just as he's been arguing with the Stoics and the Epicureans, um, uh, which is fine. Now, when then he gets taken to court, um, it's because in the ancient world, each city had its own uh, patron, we would call it like a sort of a patron saint, a divinity. In Athens, it was the goddess Athene, of course. In Ephesus, Paul gets into trouble because it's it's Artemis or Diana in the Roman language. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if somebody comes to the town saying, I want you to worship different gods or goddesses, then this means that you're not going to be loyal to the to the real gods and goddesses who we've all been worshipping. And if that happens, then bad things will result. There'll be earthquakes, there'll be a fire, there'll be a flood, or something will happen because we haven't been worshipping the gods or goddesses we should have been worshipping. So this is a very serious charge, and it is part of the same charge that God Socrates into trouble. Five centuries before, Socrates was on trial for preaching foreign divinities and corrupting the young. Now, Luke doesn't say that they said Paul was corrupting the young, but that kind of goes with the territory. So he has to explain himself. And now, fair enough, the explanation does involve some of what we might call um, apologetics today. But make no mistake, this is not apologetics as in a philosophical debating society. This is this is apologetics with a price on your head. Um, and so Paul doesn't mince his words. And he, he said, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary, really. I don't know if you've been to Athens, but if you go there and look from the Areopagus, there's the Acropolis with um, the, this huge hill with the Parthenon on, one of the greatest works of architecture ever in the whole world, still to this day. And Paul says, ah, these temples, they're just a category mistake. Um, the, the, the Almighty doesn't live in houses made with hands. So he's not trying to curry favor with them. He's, he's going all out. It's a Jewish message. And he gets away with it because he can 
outsmart them, he can outthink them. So the court ends up scratching its head and saying, um, well, okay, you've made your point, we think you're crazy, but maybe you're not actually a danger to the state after all. Um, but Paul leaves town fairly soon after that, as though he knows that maybe some, they, they may try and come after him again. It's a fascinating scene. It's one of the great set pieces in the whole New Testament. I know as I am often argumentative, I don't know if I would have the gumption to do that. Is what in Paul's history before that, or is it just him being smarter, the smartest man in the room, able to keep up with and and argue for his life, basically? Is there anything in his training prior when he was Saul that would equip him to be able to do that? I don't think so, except for the fact that Tarsus, where he grew up, was one of the great philosophical centers of the ancient world, because about a century or so before Paul's time, the Romans had come and smashed Athens up because Athens had got on the wrong side in a local war and the Romans took vengeance on them. And so a lot of the philosophers who'd been based in Athens uh, left town and they went either to um, to Rome, or indeed to Tarsus. Excuse me, that's just a clock striking in the background. I hope it's not putting your listeners off. Um, and so Tarsus was a center of philosophy, and Paul would have grown up with these debates going on on the street all around him. He would have known what the Stoics said. He would have known what the Epicureans said. He, he, he would have thought his way through all that. And there were many other Jews of the time who wrestled with the same issues, um, like Philo in Alexandria, like whoever wrote the book we call The Wisdom of Solomon. They were dealing with these philosophical issues, but from within a Jewish framework. And Saul seems to have known at least some of those traditions. So it won't have been entirely strange to him. At the same time, he probably didn't expect actually to be hauled before the highest court in the most famous city in the ancient Greek world, but I suspect he rather enjoyed that. After all, Paul knew his Old Testament well. He knew that the servant in Isaiah 52 and 53 was the one who would startle many nations and make kings shut their mouths. And I think Paul relished the chance to say things which would startle the nations and which would make kings shut their mouths because of the news <laughs> about Jesus. And I think by then, he was, if you like, throwing caution to the winds and saying, I've been called to witness to Jesus, and if this is what it looks like, well, hallelujah, let's get on with it. <laughs> yeah, it would be like me, well, this is hyperbolic, but riding up to Washington, D.C. and saying something so truthful and insulting at the same time that they just haul me into the Supreme Court and just get on with it, correct? Yep, yep. Well, that that's right. And and who knows? I mean, it, we, we, we joke, but in your country and mine, um, there might be a time in a year or five years or 20 years or whenever, when actually people who are loyal to Jesus will have to stand up and be counted, and it will be risky. And um, I think one of the reasons that we aren't persecuted at the moment is probably because we've compromised a little bit more than we like to imagine. Yeah, I would agree. I, I find from this podcast and, and, and in-person conversations that result from it, the the more that I talk about Jesus and or what the teachings of Christianity mean I have to live like, I yep. get a obscene amount of pushback uh, ah. and, and adjectives that aren't appropriate for now. Um, <laughs> the So when Paul is preaching to them, Christians are the atheists, correct, in this situation? And, and I know we, we look at it in hindsight that we call atheists someone that doesn't believe in God. But for him to try to convert people, and you alluded to it earlier, they, they live communally because 
they're yeah. they're thrown out. Christians are the the uh, the atheist in this situation, correct? Yeah, I mean, you, you imagine what are the main sort of socio cultural things that everybody in a town does? It maybe everyone goes to the ball game, or everyone goes to the cinema, or everyone goes to whatever it is. Um, here in eastern Scotland, we have these lovely beaches and so on, and golf clubs, and and lots of people go to them now. Imagine it's more than that, but not less than that. That the ancient religion means that there are temples on almost every street corner, and everybody knows when it's a festival to Lord So and So, a festival to Athene, a festival to Caesar, who is the new um, the new god on the block, if you like. And when there's a festival, the whole town shows up. I mean, um, I, I, I'm speaking to you now when we are about to have a royal wedding here in the UK, and there's all sorts of people, millions and millions of people, will be tuning into what. That um, I mean, that isn't in that sense a religious event. In a sense, maybe it is. But uh, my point is that in every city in the ancient world, when they had these great festivals, which were very frequent, and great sacrifices and so on, everyone went. And so suddenly, if you stop going, then the neighbours will notice. And your friends will notice, hey, why aren't you coming? Oh, well, I don't do that stuff anymore because these actually, these gods, they don't really exist. I believe in one God, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus, the one who has embodied him on earth. He's his son, and we're worshipping him. One day they maybe say, well, I don't know what you've been smoking or drinking, but it sounds pretty dangerous stuff to me <laughs> because, as I said before, if we don't worship the gods, bad things will happen to our town, and then we'll know who to blame. That's, that's the reality of life for somebody who had been an ordinary pagan in an ordinary town and then suddenly stopped. Now, the point is, the Jews had a free pass because the Romans had discovered that there was no point trying to persuade the Jews to worship their gods. The Jews just wouldn't ever do it. So they compromised. The Jews said, we will pray for Rome and for Caesar. We will not pray to Caesar, let alone to Athena or anyone like that. But then suddenly, all these people who are not Jews, not ethnically Jews, are claiming the same privilege. They're claiming that they don't have to do this pagan worship anymore either, um, because they are going to worship the one God revealed in Jesus and powerful by the Spirit. And this is just totally shocking and socially deeply undesirable. And who are these people? Well, and look what they're doing. They're hanging out with slaves and with women, and who knows what they're getting up to. So you can imagine the socially disruptive nature of Pauline Christianity is something that most Christians today have not even begun to dream of, but it was massive at the time. Yeah. I want to I ask one more quote-unquote, history, history, oh my gosh, I can't talk, history-related question, and then I want to try to dovetail a few questions that I've gotten from some listeners uh, as we, as we come toward the, towards the end of, of, of this. Um, So when I read the latter parts of Paul's letters, um, at, at least the way that most people date them, he seems to be more, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, more choosy in the words that he used, and slightly depressed in like Second Corinthians and that type of stuff. Is is any? Do you see any of that in his writing? And if so, how how can we learn from that on how to deal with depression ourselves? Okay, Second um, Corinthians chapter one 
um, describes something that has happened to Paul. We don't know exactly what it was, and I write about this at some length in the book, um, but he says, uh, uh, writing to the Corinthians from Ephesus, though I think he's writing that letter while he's on the journey around northern Greece, um, making his way towards Corinth, but he says, look, I don't want you to be ignorant that when I was in Ephesus, I was so crushed that I despaired of life itself. And he said, I felt as though I had received in myself the sentence of death. Now, I'm a pastor. If somebody came into my room and said, these last few days, I have had this deep sense inside me that I've just been condemned to death, then I think I would say to myself, this poor person is having a nervous breakdown or something pretty close to mm -hmm. and, and is in utter despair. And, we, you know, this isn't just a matter of a nice pastoral conversation and then a pat on the back and off they go. This is really serious stuff. Now, we are not quite sure why he went through this experience in terms of what were the historical circumstances. My own guess is that he'd been in Ephesus. He'd been very successful. All sorts of things have gone really well for him. Um, the principalities and powers seemed to be in disarray they were put to flight he was um, um, magicians were coming and burning their magic books and so on but the trouble is that the dark powers don't give up easily and they strike back and they don't play fair they play nasty and I think something happened to Paul which totally totally dragged him down and of course if you were thrown into jail in the ancient world, as he may well have been, I think he was thrown into jail at least once in Ephesus, um, they don't feed you. Your friends have to come and feed you. And if your friends can't find you, then you might be seriously hungry. You might be starving. Uh, you might be cold. It might be winter. You might be sick. It would be very easy to feel that everything had, in fact, gone horribly wrong. When you're short of food and sleep and drink and you're cold and sick, then however strong your faith is, then everything gets shaken. And I think that's what happened to Paul. Now, he says, this was to make me rely on the God who raises the dead. Now, we have to tread very carefully here. Uh, I have dealt with depression on both sides of the table, as it were. It's no good saying to somebody who's depressed, oh, you just have to trust in the God who raises the dead. Um, they'll probably just kick you or slap you or, or go and shoot themselves, because if it's serious depression, just telling them to snap out of it is probably the worst thing you can do. However, what I think happened in Paul's case, and, and we can't prove this, but I think that uh, like a plant in a harsh winter, Paul has had to put his roots deep down into the truths that he believed, but now he has to find them in, a, in an even deeper way. Paul had always prayed, and somebody who has the habit of praying in the way that Paul lifelong had had the habit of praying, he didn't stop praying when he was depressed. He just prayed his way deeper and deeper into the Jewish traditions about um, the one God who is the God of Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul had already learned to pray that in a Christian way. There is one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ. And he'd also learned to pray the Jewish prayers about the Exodus, um, the, the Psalms and so on. And he was praying them with Jesus in mind. And I think Paul, in his praying, even in despair, his heart is going on praying, and he's going down deeper than anyone had been before, and he comes back with these amazing poems that we find in Philippians 2 and Colossians 1, which are poems about Jesus' victory over the powers, Jesus' victory over death. And I think that was how, slowly, slowly, he managed to crawl his way back out of the pit. I think it was through the habit, the lifelong habit of prayer, um, with the gospel now reshaping 
the ancient habits of Jewish prayer. That's the best analysis I can do of how he got out of the pit. But what it was like when he was in there, he just tells us those few lines, and it was obviously pretty awful. Do you think that the Bible that we have today or the history that we have of Paul today would exist without Barnabas? <laughs> Good question. Good question. Um, I mean, who knows what ifs? It's like, you know, supposing um, somebody had bumped off Adolf Hitler in 1919, what would the 20th century have been like? Um, and we, we can play those games. Certainly under God, Barnabas had a very strong hand because it was he who saw that they needed somebody in Antioch who was a good teacher, who understood scripture and could speak the languages and, and get on all fours with people. And he went to Tarsus and got Saul. And if that hadn't happened, who knows what, what might have happened? I suspect that in the providence of God, somebody else would have done it. But yes, um, the way things were, Barnabas is pretty well responsible for that. I hear that, and, and what I hear in that when I when I read a, about Barnabas is, don't be afraid to answer the call. That when you feel yeah. called, do it because it could have impacts in so much as we're still talking about it today. Um, yep, but, absolutely. But yeah, all right. So, changing gears a little bit, and and I I mean it in a way that is culturally relevant today. Um, and I've spoken about it with with other guests about there's just a lack of historical contextual knowledge of any ancient times much less ancient israel or or you know the, the early church and so do you yeah. feel like our obsession with church growth and i say that in air quotes again now is led us to having a poor reading of paul's letters in that we misconstrue misconstrue cultural suggestions into must follow laws and must follow dogma Yes, um, I don't totally understand the church growth movement because the churches that I've worked in, and I've worked a long time in, in many different churches, um, are not part of that kind of style. I've seen church growth. I've also seen church decline, which is allied to other things that are declining in society for, for all sorts of sociocultural reasons. Uh, I know God can do extraordinary things and rejuvenate churches, and I've seen that happen as well. So I'm not saying that God only wants small failing churches that would be ridiculous um, but I, I do think that we often do have our priorities wrong and instead of well not instead of church growth but alongside church growth um, I think Paul would be horrified that we are not insisting on unity the, the, the thing that would really shock him if he were to see us today is not only that we are disunited but that we don't care so somebody plants a church and they're successful and the church grows and they have a new building and, and big programs but they have nothing to do with the church down the road or the one uh, across the, the other side of the square or whatever, because they're thinking, well, uh, God is doing this thing here. For Paul, the really important imperative at the end of Romans is that so that you may with one heart and voice glorify the God and Father of Jesus. Paul saw the danger of church disunity, because frankly, if churches are disunited, the wider world doesn't care what we say. Um, they take no notice. That's why in my country, the newspapers love it. Any sign of church disunity, the newspapers report it instantly. And the churches can do all sorts of good things which won't get reported, but the papers love it because if the churches are disunited, then they, the wider secular world, don't need to pay any attention to what we're saying. And that's the real thing that we ought to be addressing. Is it, and this has been in the news a lot lately because of um, Piper, at least in my country, and, and I can't think that you don't follow it, but do you think it's fair to blame 
uh, the bulk of the way that we treat patriarchal roles and misogyny and uh, homosexuality and homophobia on uh, and the role that women can be in leadership in, in any form of worship on Paul's letters, is, does he bear the bulk of that blame or is that us doing it wrong? Let me say first, the fact that you mention all those different things that you just listed in the same breath shows that in our culture we have totally, totally misunderstood Paul because the question of the role of women in churches is something that I think Paul will be very clear about. Face it, when he writes the greatest letter ever written, namely the letter to the Romans, who does he give it to to take to Rome? Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church in Cancrei, who's on an independent business trip to Rome, and it's to her that he entrusts this incredible letter. And that almost certainly means that Phoebe is the first person to read Romans out loud to anyone, and she's highly likely to have been the first person to explain it to anyone. And when you just stop and think of the earth-shattering implications of that, then all sorts of things look different. But when we're talking about the homosexual question, um, the fact that we talk about homosexual itty, that's a modern idea, the idea that there's an itty, a condition called this, but also the fact that we don't distinguish between inclination and behavior. For Paul, inclination and behavior would always be radically distinct because Paul knew, as actually most wise people have always known, that all human beings at some stage in their life have all kinds of inclinations which they know or they find out quite soon they ought not to act on. And the question of which inclinations you act on and which inclinations you don't act on is one which our modern Western world has been singularly bad at addressing because we've somehow imbibed ever since the 60s the idea that spontaneous impulses must be good and must be obeyed. And um, so the, the fact that we don't think through these things shows that we are not only not on the same page as Paul, we're not on the same page as Plato and Aristotle or as any of the other great moral thinkers. So we've got ourselves in a moral mess, and if we blame Paul for it, well, so much stupider are we, because Paul is actually very clear on these issues, and uh, if only we would actually understand him instead of bouncing our muddles back off him like echoing off some wall, then the better. So don't don't turn him into a yes man then. So what? <laughs> <laughs> don't turn him into a yes man or a no man. Um, <laughs> turn him into somebody whose whole aim of life was to get people to think and to think clearly and to think Christianly. And if we followed that imperative, we'd all do a lot better. How do I deal with the with what you said about Romans and Phoebe, knowing that many people will use Romans and Timothy to say that my daughters maybe one day cannot be ministers? How how do those two reconcile? Try going to First Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul talks about what women should be wearing on their heads when they are praying or prophesying in church. So clearly in First Corinthians 11, he wants women, he expects women to be leading in public worship. He just wants them to look like women while they're doing it and dress in that way and not try to be ersatz men or, or androgynous in some way. Now, I know there's another passage in First Corinthians 14. It's a difficult passage. I and others have written about it. Um, which says women should keep silent. I suspect that's because in a divided congregation with men one side and women the other, the men might understand, who might be more educated might understand what the sermon was about. The women might not be getting it, so they might 
start to chatter or gossip, and that's that's one way of reading that passage. Um, the passage in First Timothy is a difficult passage, partly because it uses several words which are, if not unique, at least very rare, unique in the New Testament, and which can be translated in several different ways. And I and others have argued variously, for instance, that First um, Timothy may well be written to a situation in Ephesus where the main religion in town is an all-female religion, the cult of Artemis, and it's quite possible that people in the Christian church in Ephesus were saying, ah, well, if we've got a new religion called Christianity, obviously we'll have to get the women running it, because that's what we in Ephesus do. We have women priests, we have this, that, the other. And so First Timothy would be saying, chapter 2, no, the women must not usurp the role of men. Now, that's not all that it's saying, but that is part of the cultural context, which might help us to explain why that passage is very different. But actually, when I'm arguing this case, I start um, with Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. This is off topic from Paul, but when Jesus wants to commission somebody to be the first person ever to tell anyone else that he's raised from the dead, that he's ascending to the Father, which is the foundation of all Christian proclamation, then the person who gets chosen is Mary Magdalene. And I just think there's a big QED after that. Let's lighten up and (laughs) get on with it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I agree. And and being that I have two daughters. All right. Yeah, I have two daughters too, and two sons. (laughs) I don't think that I could ever attend a church. I don't think I could ever be part of a local church that somehow said that they can be president, uh, Supreme Court justice, astronaut, Uh, yeah, professor, yeah, yeah, yeah. but not minister, Mm-mm, anything but yeah. that. Um, I, mean, I think part of the difficulty there is that I would want to say very clearly, there is a big difference between being a man and being a woman. These are the, 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 the old modernist idea and women were identical apart from some minor biological function, I think is just crazy. And I think we're seeing a backlash against that now. And part of the confusion on gender identity comes from and within that backlash. But having said that, um, this does not mean that I am then taking what people please to call a complementarian position, as though men can only do X, Y, and Z, and women can only do A, B, and C, and never the twain shall meet. There is a huge overlap, just as there is a huge overlap in of of various sorts between men and women. So men and women are different, but God wants them both um, exercising part of the varied ministries of the Church. There's no question about that in my mind. Last question for you, Tom. Okay. What is one thing, besides buying your book and reading it, and I can't recommend that, and there are other texts as well, um, there are many reviews of your book online that that reference other other texts to help complement this. So what would be one thing that we could take away from Paul the man that would help us do better church today, starting tomorrow, or starting the moment that you listen to this? What is the one thing that we could take away? Wow, wow. Uh, I, I would love to see the church learning from Paul the value of Christian poetry. There are so many things which we want to say as Christians, but it's hard to say them all together. In Philippians 2 and Colossians 1 and other passages as well, but especially those, and perhaps 1 Corinthians 13, we have the earliest Christian poems ever written. I think Paul probably wrote them himself. And there he is saying beautifully, scripturally, Christ-focusedly, what has to be said in terms of a celebratory prayer. And we sort of read those passages out, and we might preach a sermon on them, but actually we need to think, maybe there is a new vocation for people today. 
to think theologically, not in order to write 400-page books, but in order to write poems which will go to the very heart of the matter and which will appeal to people, not just intellectually, but emotionally and culturally, to enable them to praise and worship in rich, scripture-fueled ways. I, I really, I mean, you, you didn't expect me to say that, and in a sense, I didn't expect me to say this, but I've been thinking about it a lot, <laughs> and I think that's something that Paul has to give that most people do not expect to learn from him. But my goodness, we could, and it would be very good for us. I was not expecting that. Um, <laughs> in, in, in full transparency, I have eight pages of eight-point pieces of paper in front of me with questions to answer, and that thread of thought was not anywhere on any of these. So I, I appreciate, I appreciate that. I'll let right. you, I'll give you back the remainder of your evening. Thank you so much, Tom. I thank you yeah. very much. It's very good talking to you and greetings to all your listeners. Oh, and one last thing. I assume that you know, or your listeners know that I've done these various online courses, including the, on this book. Um, they're at www.ntwriteonline.org. I do know um, that, but they may not. I will put a link to okay. that in the show notes. That will be brilliant. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. No problem. Uh, have a good evening. Very good talking to you. You as well. you enjoyed that as much as I did. I can't express how thrilled I was that Professor Wright agreed to come onto the show. And, and I hope that we can all take a page out of his book that there is more than one way to view the Bible. The Bible is not just some huge amount of stories that matter in only a theological way. These are real people that existed in a real time in a real culture, specifically when we talk about the New Testament, and that that culture and that history cannot be looked at in a vacuum. Context matters. Whom was being spoken to matters. So much to learn. Can't recommend enough. Please go get uh, Professor Wright's book. It is a great book on Paul. There are other books as well that will approach it from a different way, and he's written some of those, but it is well worth the time and effort and energy to dig through it, but work your way through it slowly. And I think that the reward at the end will be well worth the time and energy that that takes. Today's music was used with permission from one of my favorite artists, composer, producer, songwriter, based out of Chicago, Ryan O'Neill, who goes by the name Sleeping at Last. The music specifically used today is from an album that he released a little while back called The Spring. The money and the proceeds raised from that album go to support the ministry of Charity Water. Charity Water is a extremely worthwhile organization. What they do is they take money and they build and help sustain wells in places that there is no clean water, no functioning water, and water is life-giving. If you don't believe me, then don't drink any tomorrow. Water is life-giving, and so please, if you have a moment, go to the show notes, support the Ministry of Charity Water. There are extremely easy ways to get involved with that. Also, please support Sleeping at Last and his partnership with that, and, and I will tell you, he is recently releasing albums about the Enneagram. The tone of each song matches the number for the Enneagram. He hasn't made it to number eight yet for me, but I'm looking forward to when he does. You'll find all those links in the show notes. You'll also find the music today in the Spotify playlist. Remember to rate the show on iTunes. Follow the show at Podcast on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook as well. Be blessed, and we'll speak to you next week. 